Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Recovery Talk. Today I'm very lucky to be joined by the wonderful Day Olette. She is a fellow eating disorder recovery coach specialized in FBT, family-based treatment, and working with the parents of children with eating disorders. I really enjoyed having JD on for this conversation. We are debunking some unfortunately very ingrained myths that society have about parents' role in their child developing an eating disorder. And we're also talking about the parents' role in recovery and how parents can be very valuable allies in eating disorder recovery. We're also talking about the importance of food first and the importance of reaching someone's set point weight range in order to reach full recovery. I hope you guys will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so thank you so much for being here. And maybe you could start with introducing yourself and just say a bit about your work and what you're doing and also how you got into doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. So um, I'm JD. I live here in uh, San Diego, California in the USA, and I am the mom of four children uh, the youngest of whom developed anorexia at 17 in what is our year 12. Um, very sudden, very precipitous. We had no idea that the genetics for this were in our family. She had the temperament that we now know is sort of, you know, prone to this. Um, and we were incredibly lucky that we live very close to UC San Diego, which is a top research and treatment facility in, in the U.S. And so uh, I was an educator, a teacher at the time. And um sort of a lifelong educator in any venue. And so we got at UC San Diego cutting edge treatment. It was all the latest stuff. They were doing MRIs, they just all the research and everything. So um, there is no eating disorder journey that is easy. And my daughter's was no different. And because of the psychoeducation and the skills-based training we received as parents and she received dialectical behavioral therapy as part of her care, um, within three years, she was in very solid recovery and able to go study abroad in Australia and, um, you know, has been, has not looked back from that. So when I got involved in parent communities online, um, I was instantly horrified by all the things that people were listening and following that were at not at all based on evidence. So that really ignited a passion in me to become that educator. I always have to shout out UC San Diego for saying like, come to our conference here, go to this conference with us. Do you want to speak with us? And really starting me off on, on that journey. And um, so ultimately in 2019, I left uh, working in education and developed my private practice as a family coach for uh, families who have a child going through eating disorder to augment a treatment team. And then um, in another sort of professional highlight of my life, uh, January 2020, I was one of the first employees at Equip, which was a virtual online treatment center built to deliver FBT um, with the addition of family and parent mentors. So I built that mentorship department and I'm now their director of lived experience. So um, just a huge fan of making sure I believe that almost all parents want to do the best thing, that this is the hardest experience most of us will go through. I will say personally, as a parent, I provided end-of-life care to my mother and sister who died of cancer at relatively young ages, and this was exponentially harder. 
um, and it's possible. So that's why I want to give people hope and tools. One thing you mentioned was that when that you enter these online communities aimed to support parents of children of when their children have eating disorders and that you were quite horrified about a lot of what you saw, right? And I think I can imagine what you saw, but I'm going to ask you anyways. What, what kind of what kind of content did you see online? What kind of myths do you find are very persuasive around the role parents have in an eating disorder? Yeah, so one of the ways I describe it to people as like, it's information from 50 years ago and what we thought then, right? And so if you've done any looking into this, you know, you're sort of familiar with the Hildebrook Golden Cage sort of uh, thought process and then Salvador Mnuchin, who actually did some really amazing things for the field, um, videotaped his sessions. And then from what he saw in those sessions, which was moms trying to, push their kids to eat and dads who were sort of like checked out because they were in fear. He made the assumption that those families caused eating disorders, not that that was how those families were behaving in the crisis of an eating disorder. And so consequently, a lot of just really terrible assumptions. And I, all of your listeners aren't going to have lifetime TV, but in the USA, we have a, a channel called lifetime TV and it's sort of women's movies kind of, but all of them that has show the anorexia story and, Clearly, anorexia is not the only eating disorder, but it's always like controlling parents who are pushing their children to be high achievers. And then the narrative is she couldn't control anything in her life. So she chose to control her food. Um, and, you know, just pretty much everything about that narrative is wrong. And so um, one of the things and some of this happened, actually, I, I, why I was doing this, right? My daughter had DNA in the Anorexia Nervosa Genetics Initiative as did uh, my mother-in-law. And um, even as I've been doing this, right, we've been learning really a lot. And we now know that anorexia in particular is definitely genetic. It has metabolic components we were unaware of. Um, so there's just, it's a whole lot more complicated than, um, than just sort of like controlling family, right? And then I always wanna put in a note about the temperament and sort of that overachiever stereotype with anorexia. It's not that we were pushing them to do that stuff. It's just like hard to stand in their way because those are the kind of people that they are. And I also want to be clear that I've never met a person with any eating disorder. And we're talking mostly about my experience with anorexia who wasn't like the coolest human being with the ability to go on and do the most phenomenal things. And so I'm a huge fan of the temperament-based treatment. Um, sort of letting folks know that of all those traits you have, there's a good and a, you know, there's a light and a dark side. And the eating disorder has hijacked it for darkness and illness and isolation. And you can take it back and you can harness that for wellness and growth and, and a wonderful life. I really love what you're saying that we're essentially taking the the traits uh, that become, I guess, pathologized with that overachiever perfectionist and saying that, yeah, you know what, but you can use that, you know, you can achieve good things, right, rather than the eating disorder, right? And what you mentioned there, oh, I see this myth over and over and over. And it frustrates me because, like I said, there is a, there is a huge research gap, right? A, a lot of the research, again, it's like decades and decades back in time. And in other arenas of uh, psychology, we look back at the research of our outdated beliefs about certain things. And we're like, that was just a silly, silly belief, right? 
Uh, but with eating disorders, a lot of these things have almost just become accepted as as truth. And I think there is a lot of a lot of what you when you mentioned that experiment with the the family, the families and like the the father checking out, the mom trying to get their child to eat. There's a lot of this stereotype around, you know, overprotective mothers. But I'm also thinking, how would a mother react in that situation? Right. And a lot of what is essentially a very understandable response from a parent then gets used as evidence like this is just dynamic right and I think I think uh, that is probably one of the most frustrating myths I see about parenting and eating disorders is this idea that it is the parent's fault right that essentially it is something the parent did or said and I think that Eating disorders, they're so difficult to understand that very often when when us as human beings, we can't find any, it doesn't make any sense to us. So we find explanations, right? So we think, oh yeah, it must be because trying to control this or trying to do that, or the, the parents said or did that. And parents spend so much time endlessly ruminating, oh, it must be when I said that, or was it when I said that comment? And it's like, nobody's perfect, right? You may have a genetic vulnerability that you got from your parents, but it's not necessarily eating disorders is not caused by bad parenting. Very often what I see as a coach is that my clients would very often have amazing families that are so supportive and very commonly clients will describe and say that my family is my biggest support in my recovery, right? Of course, there are people with eating disorders and dysfunctional families, but you see that not everyone with a eating disorder has a dysfunctional family and not everyone with a dysfunctional family has an eating disorder, right? Absolutely. And I would say that there will be a segment of any population with an illness, with childhood cancer, with childhood diabetes, with cystic fibrosis, there will be a number, a percentage of families in any group that are range from unhelpful to toxic. And it's, that's not unique to eating disorders. Um, And uh, yeah, people do have a tremendous amount of guilt. I will say one thing that was really helpful for me, you mentioned controlling, right? Um, when I was a high school teacher, I had question authority painted on my wall. Um, I come from hippie stock. <laughs> Controlling is not my thing. And so, uh, and my kids were actually what we would call in the U.S., you'd probably call it normal in Norway. In the U.S., we call it free range, which is they were allowed to like do a lot of stuff without supervision at younger ages and, and that kind of stuff. So one of the things that I think was beneficial to me was that I intuitively knew the moment my daughter got an anorexia diagnosis after, and she had very strong anosognosia or not understanding what was happening, I immediately had this epiphany, oh, all that stuff is wrong because that's not us. So clearly that's not what causes it because we're not those people. So that was, I think, helpful. And I once, you could tell I talk about this stuff a lot. I was once in line at the grocery store in a long line chatting with the person, whatever. I don't even remember how the conversation came up. And I said that my daughter had anorexia, might've been all the stuff in my shopping cart. And she said, why are you telling me you're a terrible mother? And I said, because I'm not a terrible mother and everything you know is wrong. Yeah, that is, I think that kind of sums it up. Everything you or like most people think they know about eating disorders is often wrong. And there are certain stereotypes and ideas and, you know, cliches almost about what it is about and what it's caused by that just gets repeated so often that people take it as truth you know you hear something enough times you just oh yeah that's just how it is right but I think that there are these again there's so much of a genetic and biological and yeah components to eating disorders that we don't really know about because we're still stuck on you know looking (laughs) endlessly analyzing family dynamics which hasn't really taken us much further oh my gosh like standing ovation for that comment 
I tell people that, you know, you have to think about it in the context that the only thing that has shifted um, recovery rates has been a focus on um, what I call food first and family empowerment. And I think that is, that came in as FBT. And I don't think that has to strictly be FBT. I think of it like there's an umbrella of food first, treat the symptoms, resolve the nutritional aspects and bring in a support circle, very often family. And that as time goes on and that becomes the accepted view, we'll have multiple approaches that incorporate that. That takes us on to something, uh, something that could be quite important to cover. And that is FBT. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, it stands for family-based treatment. So maybe it could be good if you could explain a bit about what FBT is and also just, yeah, how how does it work? Yeah, so um, FBT, which came out of the Maudsley Method at the Maudsley um, Hospital in London, and I feel very lucky to know some of the architects of, of the origins of these things. Um, and so what it first acknowledges is that, um, I'm going to use the way I explain it, you can't therapize a malnourished brain, right? So we first recognize that we have to resolve the symptoms, the, the biological symptoms of the illness. So symptom first treatment, which requires in any eating disorder from ARFID to binge eating to bulimia nervosa to anorexia nervosa, all of them, nutritional rehabilitation, quite often with weight gain attached to it. So we are first resolving that symptom. We are also recognizing that um, in the brains of someone with an eating disorder, and my favorite researcher, because I'm so nerdy, I have a favorite researcher, is Dr. Guido Frank. Um, and I love all my other researchers, but he's my favorite. Um, because he once told me, if we were naming anorexia today, we would call it brain reward center malfunction disorder. And like, right? And so um, in order to resolve this malfunction, unfortunately, the thing that you have to do is people have to confront the most terrifying and very reasonably terrifying to them, uh, you know, the act of eating um, like six times a day, at high calories at high fat levels and those sorts of things. And it's largely impossible for a person to do that on their own. The, the eating disorder itself doesn't want that to happen. And it's so, it's just terrifying. And so we take the healthy people in the ecosystem we ideally give them a lot of skills training on how to do this in a, in a compassionate and insistent way. Um, and then we feed our children. And when I say children, I'm really talking about any age. I've seen FBT work up to age 26. I've actually seen partners um, do some form of this through boundary setting. But so in the first phase, we're resolving all those symptoms. We're, we're getting rid of the malnutrition. Um, so that then the person can become in a place to participate in their own treatment. So generally families are doing that. That would be phase one, the sort of acute phase. Um, and the FBT manual is one thing and how it happens in real life is a, usually a different thing. So there, if you read the manual, it's something like 18 to 20 sessions. And I always joke, the kids don't read the manual and won't do that anyway. So it's to me, it's a longer process, but so we do our phase one, we resolve those, that nutritional deficit, the malnutrition, all of that sort of thing, get eating at regular intervals in play, um, stopping behaviors like, you know, uh, compulsive exercising, purging, all of those sorts of things. We take the healthy people in that family ecosystem and we use them to interrupt all of that. 
And then um, when we move into phase two, then somebody's brain is sort of better able to kind of figure out what they need to figure out, right? Some people have genuinely had trauma and they need to begin to deal with that. Other people like my daughter had none of that. They were just very happy and healthy, encountered a negative energy balance and this bizarre thing happened to them. It was helpful for her to learn about her temperament. So that therapy in phase two is gonna take a lot of different forms. It'll involve the family some of the time and it'll be one-on-one um, -on -one therapy at other times. And so during that phase also, we're beginning to return independence. We're doing some testing. You know, can you now, instead of your parents saying at 3 p.m., it's snack time, here's a snack, can you start to go, oh, it's 2.45, I know it's about to be snack time, let me go and get a snack and go say like, hey, parent, this is the snack I'm having, right? And then as we see that happening, then we can begin to release more and more independence in a developmentally and appropriate way, which is gonna be different at eight and 12 and 16 and 22. Um, and then when we've got that person fully, um, you know, being able to be developmentally appropriately independent, feeding independently feeding themselves and not having those compulsions and things and just a few thoughts remaining, then we go into a third phase, which is sort of like regular life and relapse prevention. So, you know, sort of figuring out I think this is the stage where a lot of body image work is important because I love, love, loved your comment about the stories we tell ourselves. And I'm really a fan of the adapt to flee famine theory by Shan Guisinger. Um, and so I always, and I will always tell people, look, Joan of Arc and Catherine of Siena didn't have Instagram and they had anorexia. So the story that made sense in their time was fa uh, fasting to be closer to God. So in this time though, we, we do have to unpack the diet culture influences that might have first made some people, some people do this unintentionally, but some people it was a diet that led to this. And then we also, in order to keep people in recovery, have to unpack all of that and really like strengthen them against the, the relentless culture that they're gonna face. Um, and so that process, ideally, I think, and we do in the work that I do with, with Equip, that's a year long process. Um, and letting folks know body image is the last thing to uh, to uh, resolve itself. Uh, for my daughter personally, she needed 10% more weight than she was supposed to, air quotes way. That was a big piece of the picture. Um, and so just, and also, you know, again, letting people know throughout this process, like you didn't do this, you didn't cause this. It's a very bizarre thing that very often is egocentric. So society is reinforcing it like, Oh, yay, you strong willpower. Oh, yay, you restricted eating. Oh, yay, you exercising all these hours a day. Like, aren't you living the health dream, right? Um, so like getting rid of all of that and then helping them identify what for me is a healthy life that will help me stay in recovery and fulfill the promise of my like beautiful brain. So that's that's how I describe FBT to people. That is a very good explanation. And I love this. This is also similar to my own approach in terms of there being different phases of recovery because, and I was very lucky when I was in treatment, uh, I was told quite upfront by my psychologist that, you know, when I, because when I entered, uh, I was in outpatient treatment and when I entered treatment, I was quite underweight and undernourished. And my, my psychologist told me upfront, like, we can't really talk our way out of this. We can't start now with a bunch of talking and talking. You, Your brain is not quite there yet, right? The brain is not there. And 
you're like you're not quite you when you're hungry right so and I, of course uh, part of me was like can't I just talk my way out of this right so many times people with eating disorder think well it's a mental disorder therefore therapy should solve it right but actually it also is a in many ways a metabolic disorder a biological disorder right there's so many elements to it right so I think that is yeah it's just such an important element and that there are different phases of recovery but at the end of the day you have to eat your way out of it too and then that doesn't and I think this is a common thing people say oh well but shouldn't you work on the underlying issues yeah if there is any first of all and I think this is important so many times I hear an eating disorder there always is trauma behind it there always is right and then there are people and I see this very often that don't necessarily have any identifiable trauma that they can focus on and then there are people who do and then they might think that they need to solve that before they can recover rather than recovery and being renourished putting your brain in a state where you can process these things and actually work on if there is any underlying issue right but for some people it also is just again like they have a bit of a genetic predisposition to this their brain detects a period of undernourishment something goes wrong and they get rewarded for essentially eating disordered behaviors, right? The, the brain's reward system and fear system gone haywire or now I explain it. I love it. And I'm you're so lucky to have encountered such a forward thinking um, clinician. And one of the things I very often have to like, parents want that too, right? Parents are like, I'm just going to send them to therapy and they're going to talk, 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 and then they're going to make up their mind to eat. And um, I, you know, will first explain as you do so, so beautifully about the biological piece of it. And then I will also say, um, first of all, if talk therapy worked, people would be recovered because we've been doing that for a hundred years and like that hasn't worked. Um, and um, you also, to do therapy on a malnourished brain can be a trauma in and of itself. And so what I'll explain to people is like, if you just broke your leg yesterday, um, you are not running a marathon tomorrow. You're going to have the bone set. You're going to wait for the bone to heal. You're going to go to physical therapy and then you will begin your training. There's nothing wrong with, for most people training for a marathon, there's a lot wrong with training for it on a broken leg. And that's the same thing. Our brains work the exact same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, yeah, very good, good metaphor. So one thing that I think is a common, I guess, I don't even know if I would call it criticism because I feel like family-based treatment is something overall just because it is quite something that tends to have a good outcome it's not really something heavily criticized but some people may say oh but doesn't it encourage you know codependency right and you you did mention it you know that you know there will be in the early stages yeah there might be quite a lot of you know you're going to be quite dependent on for example your parent but that independence come a bit later during the stages but could you maybe explain a bit more about that again what would you say to people who may have that kind of argument against shouldn't shouldn't my child learn to do this on their own from the get-go yeah and um i also the first thing i want to tell to talk to people about is independence for a human being with an eating disorder means independence from the eating disorder um and so it makes sense to use all the tools we can to make that happen and in most people's cases, the family is a really good tool to make that happen. So we have to get rid of the eating disorder. And then we move on to sort of putting the parent in what's a more appropriate role or other family member. So, um, you know, I just say to people, like, it, it makes sense. Um, if your kids, say, have diabetes and they're maybe they're not that great with the insulin injections at first and the testing their blood sugar and everything, we don't say, well, I guess we're just going to let them die because they didn't get it right away, right? We're going to we're going to help them and check on them and make sure and we're going to train them and that sort of thing. So 
the biggest myth I hear about eating about FBT, and I actually do still hear a lot of criticism, is that it ruins relationships. Um, won't it ruin my relationship? And part of that, I think, is what you said about them not being independent. And so what I what I will say to that is the biggest relationship ruiner is an eating disorder. Like the eating disorder wants to be your one and only, you know, your ride or die. And so it's not really that you're not having authentic relationships with your friends, with your romantic partners, with your family, with anyone. Um, so in my experience, and I've been in this, doing this for 11 years now, since my daughter got start began treatment, people who get to full recovery in FBT are the most grateful people for FBT that there is. They love their parents. They go, wow, nobody but my parents could have put up with that. Like they stuck with me through it all. So relationships tend to be very, very strong. Um, and, um, you know, I think that if you as a parent, and I'm going to say there's a danger for parents um, who are really good at phase one. So phase one is when we've got all the control, we're making the eating, we have the barometer as the weight gain, we're like hitting it, we're just just rocking that thing, right? Then it's time to let go a little bit. That's hard. That's hard. And it's okay to say that that's hard for me. My safety net as a parent is, is sort of being taken away. So if we do it step by step by step, and don't rush it and, and collaborate. And by then our kids, you know, brains, we can be talking to them. I think most parents I know actually do not want to be all up in their kids' business forever. And I often joke, I do a lot of multifamily groups with, with parents. And I'll always say like, you can't say this to your 18 year old, but the dirty little secret is we too want you to leave. We have hopes and dreams. And we were like, there were trips we were going to take and there was some stuff we were going to do when you were at home. So like, this also isn't our choice. And so I think just a lot of, you know, reiterating it's out of love. I think I cannot underestimate what skill building takes. And I'm a huge fan of skills taken from dialectical behavioral therapy. And I think it's so helpful if the patient and their family learn them alongside each other, because um, I'll always tell people like, if you want me to calm down, telling me to calm down is the last thing you should do. Because never in the history of being told to calm down has anyone calmed down, right? Particularly me. So instead, if we have DBT skills and our kids do, we can say, um, you saw a picture on Instagram and all your friends are somewhere without you. And I see that that's really, you're getting very emotionally dysregulated and you're in some pain over this. Um, I'm wondering if we could together do a check the facts skill and, you know, would that be okay? And then, you know, sort of maybe check the facts, like, you were, I had to pick you up early for a dentist appointment. And so you weren't there when they made those plans. And have you ever been somewhere else without one of the people in that group? And what were those circumstances? And that's just a lot better than saying to someone, use your skills, use your skills, you know. And I'm also a huge fan of um, emotion-focused family therapy or EFFT skills um, with a lot of validation and I think it's mind blowing for a lot of families to learn. You do not have to validate the truth of what someone is saying, because very often the eating disorder filter is saying something that's either not true or only partially true. You don't have to validate or get into a discussion about whether that thing happened or didn't happen. What you can do is validate the suffering they're in in that moment. I can see this is causing you a lot of pain. I didn't say whether it was true or not. I just said what I can see. You're in pain. And... And I really want to encourage everyone to take the word but out of your vocabulary because but is a very invalidating word. So I can see you're in a lot of pain over this. 
and it's really important we finish this meal. How can I help you with that? Um, do we want to watch TV while we're doing this? Do we want to play a card game? How are we going to get through it? So loving and firm, I think, is is really helpful. And when we get those skills and everything, families, in my experience, that get really good care end up uh, tighter, closer together, more supportive, and not in a toxic way, but just in a like, we know we walk through fire together. And when my daughter, who is... Um, about a year and a half away from being an FBT therapist. She's 28, married with a, a baby now. Um, when she and I ever speak together, she always says as the final sort of thing, look, bottom line, if I relapse when I'm 50 and my mom is 80, my mom's got me because my mom's always had me. And that's not toxic. That is what families are for. That's so wonderfully said, you know. I think that this thing with supporting someone with an eating disorder, for example, around their dinner table, this is something where a lot of people kind of get wrong. And I don't want to say that in a way where we, because like I don't want people to walk on eggshells either, right? But equally, that can be a difficult one because parents often, they want to support their child who is clearly in pain, but they don't want to give fuel to the eating disorder by saying, oh yeah, of course it makes sense. You're terrified of that slice of bread, right? And as a result, they think that maybe just kind of, why are you why are you feeling that way invalidating it's going to help because they feel like if they are saying oh yeah of course like that they again they're they're fueling the eating disorder but actually you can validate someone's emotion without saying yeah it would make your fear makes sense it makes rational sense right i think that is a very important distinction here that you made quite wonderfully right about acknowledging someone's feelings because they feel what they feel but that doesn't mean that you are agreeing with the eating disorder right it just means that you're supporting them yeah. And I found it helpful to know, again, UC San Diego, very cutting edge. My daughter's done a ton of MRI studies for them. You know, one thing in this brain reward center malfunction disorder they see is that um, when someone in an active eating disorder eats, the anxiety portion of their brain lights up, where for most of us, it's the pleasure center. So if eating causes you anxiety, most of us are programmed to avoid anxious situations. We're now learning a lot about just anxiety on its own, that it's actually exposure, not avoidance that works. And also, I think it's really helpful. I envisioned um, my daughter six times a day having to eat a plate of snakes and spiders. And how I would how would I react to a plate of snakes and spiders? It would not be pretty, right? Um, and people have different ways. Some people go into fight. Some people go into flight. Some people go into freeze a little bit more. My daughter was a, a, a flight and fight sort of person. And so a lot of emotion dysregulation there and a lot of me having to understand that the name calling the all that kind of stuff and we actually ended up with like holes punched in walls um that was the eating disorder just being in panic mode like a rabid animal and so you're not going to scream at a rabid animal because then it's more likely to bite you right instead you're going to be like speak very softly and be very calming and and when you sort of learn to do that and the reaction is the reaction it's scary for them right um, and so when you can sort of validate, like, I can, I can see this is scary and we have to do it. And just like, how can I help you? And at the same time, you as a parent are building up your skills, you're learning. Like one thing it was important for me to learn is that it can be really helpful in the early days to literally coach every single thing, pick up the fork, pick up the fork, pick up the fork, pick up the fork, stab the bite, stab the bite feels very infantile. My daughter was like 17 and 18 years old. It felt ridiculous, like a toddler. 
and it's what worked and it was what supportive. It wouldn't be supportive for me to expect her to just do it on her own. And the same thing with supervision. Parents will often ask me, well, I found like hidden food in her room or, you know, that, or he's like, I looked at his backpack and it's full of his lunches. I always say, well, first of all, your kid's not an idiot. They pass lots of trash cans to put the food somewhere where you would see it. And so I really encourage parents when you see that to say, because they always say, should I confront them? And I was like, it's not confrontation. You say, hey, you know, I cleaned this food out and I really want to apologize that you need a higher level of supervision than I'm providing. So I'm going to do my job a little bit better now and I'm going to supervise you more fully because I think there's so much shame attached to the behaviors that are compulsively done. As a parent, the last thing you want to do is judge or shame your kid. And that's a very different thing from you want to interrupt it, but you must interrupt it without blaming them because their behaviors make sense in the context of what's happening in their brain. Yeah, I think the separation between the person and the eating disorder can be helpful here, right? That actually it is the eating disorder is kind of making someone act in ways that they normally wouldn't, right? Not saying that that justifies someone being awful in a, in, a, in, in a rage moment, but it explains it sometimes, right? Well, behaving outside your values. And I think yeah. that that's a really good, you know, the externalizing like you talked about. And then, you know, sort of being able to say that to, to just to know that that's that's not your kid. Um, I don't know how PG um, 13 you are with us. So you can cut this if you if you need to. Right. My daughter's anorexia had a nickname for me that was very shocking and it was quite a showstopper. Um, and it was motherfucking controlling cunt. And so, first of all, the controlling piece was, again, like I said, that like horrifies me for anyone to consider me controlling. Um, and then the C word, I always have to tell the Brits, it's a very bad word in America. We do not call people that. And I'd never heard it spoken aloud before, right? And yet, if I got myself sidetracked to like deal with, you don't speak to your mother like that, that's not helpful. I started to to think of it as, a pressure cooker and all pressure cookers have a steam release valve. And so what that was happening, that was steam release coming off. So her own brain didn't explode. And so one of my, like the things that I said to get myself through was absorb vitriol, radiate love, absorb vitriol, radiate love. Um, and um, in the end, that's like my badge of honor. My friends and I like joke about it. Someone made me like once made me a necklace that said MFCC and, I have four kids. So people go, oh, that's your like, that's your kids' names. I'm like, no, it's not. This is what it stands for. I would wear it to meeting <laughs> conferences. Um, and, you know, a lot of times it just helps to sort of think of it as, you know, a toddler. Like a toddler can really resist you holding their hand in a parking lot and they could cry and scream and try and pull away. And, and you're still going to hold their hand because you're not going to let them get flattened by a car. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people's brains have been hijacked and we can get their brains well. Um, and I think it's cruel to leave them to do it alone. I just think that's expecting way too much from someone. And we've got like a hundred years of evidence that doesn't work. So uh, nobody starts out perfectly. Um, I think it's, again, the skill building for families. I think that's why family support for family coaching is so wonderful. I love, you know, sort of recovery coaches for who are not therapists. It's like a different thing. To be a therapist is to do a specific kind of work. And to be a recovery coach is to say, oh, I remember it. It sucks. 
you got to do it because this is how you get your real life. And like, here's some things that worked for me. Let's do we want to talk about a few of them and maybe some of them work for you. And, and also I tell parents as well, and I think this is true for people in recovery from eating disorder. It's not going to be perfect, right? It's not going to be perfect. And in fact, for many people, part of the temperament tied up is perfectionist. So we're actually trying to move away from that. So um, every lapse is not a relapse, you know, sort of every wobble doesn't have to not, you know, take you down with it. So you can learn to like have your moments of shock and disappointment and tears. And then you go, okay, we're not going to, we're not starting from way down in the hole. Now we, we just went one rung down. How, how are we going to come up from here and how are we going to make us more resistant and that sort of thing. Um, and, um, you know, I think as we were talking and emailing it, you asked a question, you, you had a really good um, point about sort of like quasi recovery and full recovery and how does weight impact that. And um, I have a, my daughter lived in quasi recovery for about six months. And um, that was at the weight that was set by very amazing clinicians in line with a lot of data. I do not fault them at all. Um, her dad and I, my husband, we really mourned that our daughter was a more rigid, more anxious, less fun version of herself than she had been before and lacking what I call her essential sparkle. And we were, of course, incredibly grateful that she was not actively dying. Um, we also now we joke about this as the time period where she could go to any restaurant in the world as long as that restaurant served a chicken Caesar salad. And, um, you know, we were from the greater world sort of had that narrative of you never get well fully well you fight this forever you know this this is recovery sort of thing um one thing led to the next it's too long a story to tell the whole thing here now um and she wheels fell off the bus because that sort of white knuckle recovery isn't sustainable she got a little bit more treatment just about eight more weeks um she gained a little more weight during that then we've been on a big family trip um, and she gained some more weight during that. And coincidentally, about 10% over what she was air quotes supposed to weigh, which is very in line with the Minnesota starvation experiment, yep. which I encourage all people with kids with eating disorders or eating disorders themselves to really look into. Um, all of a sudden, she was back and she self identified this weight. Um, and I'm not going to talk the numbers because that's not responsible, right? But this weight that she got to, which is the highest weight of her entire life, higher than she was supposed to weigh, all of a sudden, she was like, huh, that mm -hmm. was pretty bizarre what was happening in my brain. And I'm not going to say that was the very last moment that she had an eating disorder thought. It was not. It takes a long time for your brain to heal. However, once we identified that, and this goes a little bit to parental enmeshment kind of codependence thing. Once we identified that number, we all realized, okay, she has to stay there or above that and, and keep going with that because she'd been at her full adult height for four years by that point. Um, and so what that looked like for us, in for her for uni, we now had um, a contract around that. And the contract for us was what we call a green, yellow, red contract. And so basically your baseline for being at uni is that you get weighed every two weeks at the student health center. That number gets directly reported to your psychiatrist back home. Um, and I'm going to drive 16 hours round trip once a month to eat with you, which I did for two years. And I'm not going for us to have a mother-daughter weekend. I'm literally going for lunch, right? And just, I'm not trying to be in your business and ruin your college experience, but I have to see you with my own eyes because that tells me a lot. Um, and so 
green territory, that's just all that happened. If she dipped into the five pound range below that, that was yellow territory. Her psychiatrist would give her like yellow warning. She had two weeks to get back to green. If she ever lost six pounds, she was going to come home for the semester, right? We'd already done it once before. And this enabled her to learn what she needed to do herself to keep her well. So she wobbled into yellow in the first year multiple times and got herself out within two weeks. And then that quit happening. And then at the end of that time, so three years from the time she first started treatment, she studied abroad in Australia. And so by having this, I say this to folks because my daughter lost a relatively short period of her young adult life to anorexia because of the oversight. And so many times we don't want to, you know, that seems too much. That seems too burdensome. She doesn't want it. Right. And you, you go back to square one again and again and again and again for some people until it becomes chronic. So, mm-hmm. um, I really think of that sort of level of supervision and that sort of stuff and oversight as um, really supportive of a young person's independence. And I care a lot about that. I used to teach high school and I was a post-secondary admin. So, you know, these are my people. I don't want them to feel controlled, but I want them to feel supported. And as my daughter describes it, um, accountable. Yeah, I think that is so well said regarding and regarding weight, right? Because very often you always, again, you hear the thing, it's a mental disorder, therefore, why would weight gain help, right? That's physical. Uh, but actually getting to your body's natural set point weight range is your brain is going to be, you know, there are changes happening. I remember this myself when when I went through my own recovery and I started and I was like, because I was like just under a bit of a health, I was just under the healthy weight, but I was like, well, I'm fine-ish now. I'm gained some weight. And thank God I was called out for that because when I actually put on the weight where I entered my well into the healthy weight range rather than balancing, right? It was something shifted in my brain and I felt more flexible. And it's like all about finding your own happy weight. And very unfortunately is that sometimes I think treatment professionals, because they're so scared that their patient will not handle the weight gain, because after all, they're having a morbid fear of weight gain, right? They're having this extreme fear of weight gain of food. And therefore they're like, okay, yeah, we can keep the goal weight low, or we can keep the goal intake low because you're scared of food, right? Actually, the funny part about that is that it tends to have the opposite effect. It reinforces the fear that, oh, I need to be careful not to gain too much. Oh, this is the max amount of food I'm allowed to eat, right? And I think that is one very common conflict and misunderstanding between a clinician and the patient is that actually setting a low target weight, thinking that that is somehow going to help them and make them more collaborative often tends to backfire was actually committing to reaching that person's set point weight range where they notice certain things shift in their brain, right? That is where recovery is at, right? 100%. And I, the way I say it um, is state, not weight and weight influences state. And, um, as I tell people, um, I, I, your point about a lot of collusion sort of in collaboration from a very well-meaning place, right, um, with the eating disorder is not helpful to eradicating the eating disorder. And for me, one thing that really clicked with the Minnesota starvation experiment was that it makes total sense to me that a body that has ex- experienced a famine, be it a war, be it an environmental thing, be it an eating disorder, right, will be programmed to add some more to guard against the next potential famine. And once I got that lens, I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. And again, as you said, it's once you reach the place that for you 
is a healthy weight. It doesn't have anything to do with a chart or a BMI chart. It has to do with where your brain becomes flexible. Then you know you're there. And even then I tell people, once you get there, um, why not stand back from the edge of the cliff a little bit, right? And then it, like one of the things my, uh, when my daughter was going to study abroad, her psychiatrist said, you know, it'd be a good idea for you to put on like five or seven pounds before you go because travel and you don't know what the food is like and everything. And, um, and she actually told both of us that we were always moving the goalposts and that was the stupidest thing she'd ever heard. And also she did it and it worked and she was good. Yeah, this is the thing. You you shouldn't really negotiate too much with eating disorder, right? Because exactly. it's again giving it a little bit, give it an inch, and it takes a mile, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, just thank you so much for this like wonderful conversation, and I can't wait to sort of maybe collaborate more with some patients, and um, the world needs to hear more of your voice. It really does. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time and for coming on. So where can people find you on the internet or in social media? Yeah. So if you go to jdolette.com and my last name is hard to spell, but it's O-U-E-L-L-E-T-T-E. Um, you'll see a lot of things about where I am. Definitely through the FEAST community, Families Empowered and Supporting, Supporting Treatment of Eating Disorders. Used to be on the board of that, very active with that. Um, and honestly, if you just sort of, you know, kind of Google my name and eating disorders, you're going to come up with podcasts from some other amazing uh, recovery warrior type people like yourself who are, um, you know, and also parent groups and everything. But I just, I tell my daughter this all the time who like, it's so ex- going to be so exciting to have an FBT therapist who was FBT, right? Mm-hmm. The, the folks, like all you folks that are sort of like, have come into recovery in the last decade have found personal experience what the higher weight does personal experience the need for support and gotten from quasi recovery to full recovery like that's the change in the world and also because we've moved so much to destigmatize mental illness you can say it in your own name you can stand up with your head held high and say i didn't do anything to cause this why would i be ashamed of it here's my journey here's some components of my journey that seem to be shared with a lot of other people um and recovery is great i recommend you try it no matter how hard it is yeah that's usually what they say you know i don't think i met anyone that regrets recovery right so i met met a lot of people who regret not having started sooner right but it's never too late either so um i hope yeah i hope you guys who listen enjoyed this episode and i will also put uh, your you know link to your website and also to feast in the I guess it will be the caption for this podcast episode. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really wonderful to speak with you today. Big thanks to JD for joining me in this conversation. And I have added link to her website and also to the Feast website in the episode description. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and have a wonderful day and week ahead.